ready if you are. Go ahead and uh, get your Bibles out, your textbooks, class. That's what Gillette always called them. He called them textbooks. If you come in class, you bring your textbook. Um, I figured out in going to junior college that's not true. They just make you buy the textbooks and the teachers never use them. So you save a lot of money by not buying the textbooks. Um, but you can turn to Mark. It's, you're required in this class to have your textbooks. I teach out of it. Mark chapter 1. It's a long chapter. We'll be there for a while. While you're turning there to Mark 1, uh, I'm going to pray again for our time here. Jesus, uh, you are good. You are good, and we want to proclaim your goodness and sense your goodness and thank you for your goodness today. We want to thank you for who you are and, and what you have done for us. Uh, you are holy, and it's a, it's a strange thing to us that we'd even be able to come to you and speak with you, and even more than that, have you speak to us through your word and through your spirit, and we thank you for that, uh, the privilege that that is. And God, I pray that every heart here, starting with my own, would be um, in a posture of kneeling before you uh, with your word above us, guiding us, uh, declaring to us how we should live. Um, we're humble before you because this is your word. And we're not writing it. We're not making it up. We're not editing it. We want to come and learn what you have for us, learn about Jesus and what we can imitate in him um, without without any pride. I pray that you would take pride from us, take uh, critical spirits from us, uh, and just give us your Holy Spirit. Just give us yourself and let, let your Holy Spirit be our teacher. Bless this word. You've written it already, uh, so we know it's a good word. We know the gospel of Mark is good news. It's the gospel. I pray that as the gospel is declared today, that we would have ears to hear and hearts to understand. So bless us with those things. Give us minds that are alert and aware and, and interested even, and hearts that are sensitive to uh, the conviction of your Holy Spirit and the touch of your Holy Spirit that gives joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So we ask for an extra helping of joy as we look into your word today as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Sure, get what you need. We are in Mark the first chapter. It's a big chapter, too, and we'll probably be in Mark chapter 1 for a while. So this is uh, part three of our 90-part series through the Gospel of Mark. No, I don't know. I just made that number up. I don't think it'll be... I don't know how long it'll be. Around there, probably. But um, what we have, we have the first steps of ministry for Jesus. We're looking at ministry. Mark is the gospel that presents Jesus as a servant Jesus is the perfect servant, the servant of God. And when we see him, we see a model for Christian service. We see uh, a model for perfect ministry. Uh, Christian, we call ourselves Christians, hopefully. Um, Christian means little Christ. Okay, Jesus Jr., okay, that's, that's us. Um, and we are to behave like Jesus. I know that might seem too obvious. That might seem, um, you know, just apparent. But it's worth saying we are to imitate Christ. So as we look at Jesus, what he does, what he says, how he behaves, how he treats people, we're looking at a Jesus that we are to imitate. And so far in Mark, we've made it through um, 11 verses. So far, we've seen Jesus come on the scene and be announced by uh, four different witnesses. We've seen Mark, the author of the book, declare him in verse 1 to be Jesus the Christ, who is the Son of God, uh, in 
Isaiah, the prophet from the Old Testament, declares uh, in verse 3 that he is the Lord. Uh, John the Baptist says in verse 7 that he is um, the one coming who is greater. And God the Father himself speaks of his son, saying, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Um, in verse 11, they identified him as Christ, the Lord, who is God and the Son of God. Those are things about Christ that you can't imitate. Uh, we can't imitate those things. Okay, he's God and we're not. Don't expect to graduate beyond, you know, human. Um, and But so far we have seen Jesus in Mark act in, uh, in humility. He's acted, he's been declared as great, but he's come as someone humble, a servant, coming and being baptized with the sinners that he came to save. You know, he was foretold, he was announced as the son of God, as a mighty one who the prophets talked about. And instead of coming like a king, uh, he submitted himself to the will of the father. And in his humility, uh, he was baptized. He received the sign of repentance, even on on your behalf. Um, And that repentance was favorable to the father. The Holy Spirit came to him, even though he was God, he is God, uh, and has the fullness of the Spirit. He received the Spirit in the form of a dove. Um, I don't think it looked anything like that, but the symbolism is connected. Uh, Christ ministered as a servant uh, of his Father in humility, and that's something that we can imitate. Okay, we see how he serves. Those are, are ways that we should serve as well. This is how you should treat people, treat people the way Jesus treated people. Um, and we also saw last week how uh, successful ministry, successful ministry as modeled by John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest prophet. Um, the successful ministry is to exalt Christ. It's to lift Jesus up. That's good ministry. Okay, John the Baptist says in John, he must increase, I must decrease. That's, that's good ministry. Um, so successful ministry defined could be to lift Jesus up. But even Jesus did not lift himself up. He humbled himself before the Father, before the Spirit, in front of masses, and allowed himself to be lifted up. James 4, James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Jesus modeled that. He humbled himself in the sight of everyone in Mark chapter 1, and was lifted up, even by the Father, declaring him to be his beloved Son. Um, That humility of Christ won't stop in the first chapter of Mark. Um, The entire doctrine of the incarnation, Jesus becoming a man. That's humility. That's the essence of humility. Um, I'll probably be quoting this verse several times through our study in Mark. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. That's ultimate humility, okay? He was rich, he became poor. Uh, And this kind of humility that we see in Jesus led Paul to say in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That mind is humility. It's humble service. We are to imitate Christ in that regard. So we're coming into the story in Mark 1, right after Christ's baptism. He started his ministry. Uh, that, 
baptism marked the beginning of his ministry. Heaven opened, which was cool, I'm sure. The Spirit came down on him in bodily form of a dove. God the Father said, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Good stuff happening. Jesus starts. He starts his ministry. Then we come to verse 12, and we'll read 12 and 13. Verse 12 and 13. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and angels ministered to him. We'll actually read through verse 15, because that's how far we're going to teach today. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, that's our text today. Right in verse 12, you see the word immediately. So it's, this is happening right after his baptism. This is a word Mark uses a lot. It'll be in like 40 times through, through the, the gospel. But it's right after he comes up, he's baptized, he goes into the wilderness. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Okay, he was already in the wilderness. Uh, you can look at verse 4 and see that John was baptizing in the wilderness. And so the Spirit drives him further into the wilderness, away from the Jordan River, away from water. Uh, when I think of wilderness, I think of beautiful woods and lakes. Ansel Adam Wilderness, right? I'd love to spend weeks up there. It's beautiful. I love the wilderness. Don't think that, okay? Uh, the wilderness he's talking about is, is the desert. It's rocks and sand. And Mark is the only gospel writer who mentions the wild beasts, okay? And that's talking about, it's like, you got to watch out for the rattlesnakes too while you're there. It's not this, you know, Jesus petting the deer kind of picture or something like that. He's out there by himself, and it's, it's the wilderness. It's dangerous, and it's uh, empty. It's the desert. Now, I've said before, I just said a little bit, that the baptism of Christ marked the beginning of his ministry. That was kind of the first uh, thing he did that started his ministry on earth. So you would think, as people as humans, that that would be his cue then to go start healing people and preaching and casting out demons, or as the Jews would have hoped to declare himself king and start picking some fight with some, uh, some fights with Romans, you know, and, and doing stuff like that. That would be our way of doing things, I guess. Uh, but the waves of God are certainly different than our ways. And Jesus, in submitting to the Spirit, uh, is driven into the wilderness. Now this is the same spirit that came on him at his baptism while God was saying, you are my beloved son. The same spirit that was present at the exaltation of Christ is now present at the temptation of Christ. Okay? Um, don't confuse the Holy Spirit with a feeling when you're happy. <laughs> okay? It's the same spirit as with Jesus, even driving Jesus from a moment of public uh, exaltation, you are my beloved son, the spirit's there. Oh, I feel the spirit then. Then the same spirit drives him for 40 days with, and says, don't eat anything or drink anything for 40 days. And it's going to get hot because you're in the desert. Same spirit. The same spirit is present at Christ's exaltation and his temptation. Now we say we want the Holy Spirit, do we? Uh, you know, I'll admit, I pray, I pray for an anointing on the Holy Spirit when I teach, before I teach um, you know, you know, I'm, I'm studying for the sermon I want. I want the Holy Spirit so that I can be a good teacher. Um, I, I, I pray for the Holy Spirit to make me more like Christ. That's a good thing. Okay, That's not a bad thing. Uh, but I find that I 
personally do treat the Holy Spirit a whole lot more like a superpower that can be made useful to me. Um, and we can see here in the life of Christ that the Holy Spirit is not an energy drink. Okay, he's not there to make Jesus work harder, better, faster, stronger. Okay, he, the Holy Spirit is leading, he's guiding. He is a master as well as a helper who sometimes drives someone, Christ, you, to a wilderness place. Now, the word for drove, it says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness in verse 12. That's a hard word. Okay, that's not suggestive. That's not being like, you know, we ask for the Holy Spirit's leading and we expect like this little string to just kind of pull you along or something real gentle. The same word for drove there is the word that uh, is used when Jesus casts out demons. Okay? And Jesus doesn't just kind of like tug them out and give them an option to get out. You know, it's cast out. The Holy Spirit cast Jesus into the wilderness. It is a forceful, strong word. Okay? You don't use the Holy Spirit. You pray that he uses you. And the Holy Spirit is going to use Jesus. And he's leading. He's putting Jesus in a place uh, in the wilderness. Now, there's, there's a lot of books and programs and methods for a successful ministry. You know, you can define that a lot of different ways. And I guess I'll be joining the crowds as I throw my two cents in, you know. But um, let's keep things simple, okay? Here's your key. Here it is. You want one point to write it down or something. Here's your key to successful ministry. Be driven by the Spirit of God. That's really easy. Uh, easy to say, not easy to do. Uh, Jesus is going to have, you know, I'm sure what we'd call the most successful ministry because all ministry is modeled after Christ's ministry. And he is driven by the Spirit of God. The Spirit puts him where the Spirit wants him. And let, let that be the same for us. Let the Holy Spirit of God control you. If you've got ideas that are not God's, throw them out. If you have desires that are not God's desires, replace them with a desire for God. Um, Jesus was completely submitted uh, to the will of the Spirit, completely humbled, um, taking you know, the form of a bondservant, a slave. He's just like, I'm just a slave following orders. And we should desire to have that same relationship with the Holy Spirit that Jesus had. Okay? I want... I want our church to desire this. I want to desire this for myself. I want to want something. Uh, I want the, the prayer in our church to be prayers that say, Holy Spirit, take control. You lead, I'll follow. Uh, or even you push and I'll just kind of fall forward. You know, uh, we want to be driven by the Spirit of God. Uh, the alternative is to do stuff and kind of hope that the Holy Spirit follows, which we do not see Jesus do. Jesus submitted to the control of the Holy Spirit, and as a result, spent 40 days in the desert without any food. Uh, now, there's some interesting symbolism here going on. Um, Israel, you'll remember from the Old Testament in the Exodus and following books, uh, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years um, because of their disobedience to enter the promised land. And they were tempted and they sinned. Even while they were in the wilderness, they were complaining and ungrateful and whining about everything. And they were judged for it. They were judged for it. Everyone who went into that 40 years died. Okay, it was all their kids. Everyone over 20, actually. Man, even I would have died. Uh, Jesus, being a, the perfect Israelite, okay, being the perfect Israelite, the only perfect Israel, 
was in the wilderness 40 days, also tempted, but without sin. Hebrews 4.15. We talked about last week how the baptism and the life of Christ he lived for us. Okay, the perfect life of Christ we can have credited to our account. Well, Jesus is, is setting the standard again. He's like, Israel, yeah, 40 years in the wilderness and not a lot of good to show for it. I'm going to spend 40 days in the wilderness and I'm going to win. And I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do the wilderness experience the right way. Um, part of that included being tempted by Satan. You see in verse 13, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Matthew chapter 4, I'll use a cross-reference from the other gospel writer. Matthew 4 verse 1 clearly says that this was the purpose uh, of the Holy Spirit in driving him to the wilderness. It wasn't like, you know, a, a sidebar thing. You're in the wilderness on this 40-day camp out and there's a lot of things you need to learn. Oh, and by the way, Satan's going to show up. No, the reason he was there was to be tempted. He was in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now, there's, there's a little bit of uh, maybe irony or, or paradox in this because you kind of picture this as like a showdown. You know, you're like, okay, it's Jesus versus Satan, like, you know, ultimate battle there. Uh, can, you know, can Satan get Jesus to sin? Satan's going to tempt the man Jesus. Satan's the defending champion. You know, he's kind of had his heyday on planet Earth for quite some time, uh, still doing a pretty good job of it. And then there's this new guy, Jesus, he comes on the scene and he's only just got baptized and he's here to take over. You know, can he do it? Well, okay, Jesus created Satan, you know? I mean, when Satan, the angel, before he fell, was created, you know, the first thing he saw or sensed was Jesus Christ as his creator. He worshiped Jesus before he fell, all right? So it's not, it's not so much of a battle like, oh, you know, one blow here and then he's, oh, what, what's he going to do next? It's you have a creator, God, Jesus, addressing his, this enemy, some, someone that would want to be powerful instead of him, Satan. Uh, I, I know who I'm rooting for. I don't know. I don't think the other guy has a chance. Now, Jesus, being human, okay, he had weaknesses. I'm not saying it was easy for him to go 40 days without food. It says he was ministered to by angels. That tells us he needed ministering to. You know, I mean, he needed help. He was hungry after eating. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't just glowing all the time being, you know, I'm not hungry. I'm God. He was a man. He was a man, Jesus, you know, he's going through a hard time, you know, let alone having a 40 day debate with the devil, you know, and I guess you can insert your uh, political joke of your choosing right there. But, you know, he was, he was hungry and he was weak and he was tempted. But Satan, a fallen angel, was nothing more than a creation. And Jesus never stopped being the creator. Okay? This all, the only thing that's happening here is, is it's a painting trying to conquer the artist who painted it. Okay? It's that level of ridiculousness, I guess. And Satan doesn't have a chance. Now, there is uh, again, a, a paradox here, because at this point in time, Jesus is both a conquering king waging war against an enemy, as well as the suffering servant. He's fasting, he's praying, he's being ministered to, um, he's being tempted. Now, that doesn't seem fitting for God. We think of God being like, what's God got to be tempted for and everything? But Jesus was tempted as a man because he is a man. Um, so again, just to get that theological point out there, God became a man so that men could be with God. 
And Jesus is doing that here. He's being tempted. Hebrews 4 again, it says, Hebrews 4.15 says, he is tempted in every way that we are. And a lot of that probably happened during this 40 days. You think your sin that you're tempted to, you can remember this 40 days that Jesus went through. And it's like he went through temptation straight night and day for 40 days. He covered them all. Okay. He was tempted to every sin, but never sinned. You couldn't go through that. Okay. You wouldn't make it through the first 40 seconds. All right. He went through it for you because you couldn't. Jesus is setting a new standard. Just the same way with the 40 days in the wilderness, you know, resetting that model that the 40 years that Israel had. Uh, Back in Genesis, Satan tempted Eve and Adam through Eve and man sinned. Romans chapter five says that sin affected all of us. Sin has spread through all men, death to all men because all sinned. Now, Satan is tempting Jesus, who in 1 Corinthians 15, great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, Jesus is called the last Adam. Why? Well, Adam is the head of our race, okay? We're all just cousins, all right? Adam, it was Adam and Eve first, and then everybody else after that, okay? He's the head of our race, the first man, and we all are um, affected by the choices he made, okay? Jesus is the head of a new race, of new creations. He's starting it right out where man started, being tempted, yet without sin. So you will find yourself either under Adam, who sinned, which means you will too, and you'll keep on sinning and sinning and sinning and rebelling against God because that's the way your father Adam did it. Or you will be under the new Adam, the last Adam, Jesus, who is tempted yet without sin. We align ourselves under Christ as new creations. Don't ever say, well, I'm just human. Not anymore. You have the spirit of God living inside you, okay? Just human means hell for eternity, okay? And eternity is a long time and it's a hot place. Okay, under Adam, you are man who sins and rebels against God and you will keep on doing that. Under Christ, you are pure and undefiled and he will present you to God as a bride that's perfect, spotless, eternity in heaven. Big difference here. So Jesus is setting the standard again because Adam didn't do things so, so hot. I think we'll all agree with that. So Jesus is going and setting the standard. He's resetting and saying, okay, now I'm giving people another (laughs) option B, be under Jesus instead of Adam. He's tempted. Mark, uh, Mark does not include the dialogue between Jesus and Satan. Uh, So I won't go into that because our study's in Mark and not Matthew or Luke. Um, And he also, he doesn't give the outcome of the 40 days, okay? Because the other gospel writers, you can read it yourself, but it kind of ends with Jesus winning, You know, Jesus says, get away. And then Satan leaves because you don't say no when God tells you to do something. Um, But it it doesn't say, oh, and then Jesus won. You know, and this is kind of interesting because throughout Mark, Jesus continues to confront the demonic realm. There's more demonic, uh, you know, exorcisms in Mark than the other gospels, uh, word for word. And so some people have suggested, you know, it's like, oh, Mark didn't include that knockout punch because that warfare continued throughout his ministry. Uh, however, I, I kind of see this, and I would say that the conflict that Jesus had with Satan is not mentioned in detail because the result of the fight was a given based on what we just read in the first 11 verses and what we'll continue to read afterwards. He doesn't battle with any demons after this. He tells them what to do and they do what they're told. Okay? And before, God said, oh, this is my son. 
uh, Isaiah had said in verse 3, this is the Lord God. It says he was tempted by Satan. It never says, oh, Jesus won, because you can look at it and say, well, yeah, obviously. Of course he did. Like, the story keeps going, and Jesus is still the good guy. So, you know, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God had promised that a man would come who was born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And well, now that man is here, you know, that man is here and you read this and all Satan has to do is show up and he loses. It's just kind of what happened. Um, Verse 14 says, now after John was put in prison, so we just skipped a whole bunch. It's just like, oh, he was in the wilderness and then now something else happened. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Okay, Uh, we have skipped a lot here. Um, which Mark kind of does. He skips, skips around, uh, misses history. Uh, John, John the Baptist, was put in prison because he told a king, kind of an under king, uh, not to sleep with his brother's wife. Hmm. That lady got mad. I don't know why. And through a series of unfortunate events, John would eventually be beheaded. That's not in Mark. It just says he got thrown in prison, moving right along to Jesus, keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. And it says Jesus went to Galilee. In Jesus's ministry, we've now skipped a lot. Uh, we don't have records of Jesus, Jesus's first miracle, which is in John 2. Uh, Jesus's first trip to Jerusalem, where he cleans out the temple for the first time. That's also in John 2. All of that skipped. Okay, we just, we skipped uh, a good period of time and go straight to Jesus at Galilee. So there's a time gap from wilderness to Galilee, verse 13 to verse 14. Now Jesus comes to Galilee. Now this is one thing about Christ's ministry, uh, again, that is different than the way uh, we might do things, or the way anyone would do things. Okay, Galilee, um, Galilee is Raymond. That's, that's it, okay? That's the only thing, that's the only thing you get. Um, And it was not a respectable area. It wasn't the center of anything. Uh, Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, that's where the temple was. That's where the money was. That's where the power was. Influential people went there. Galilee, it had a, it had fish and dust. It had a lake and it had fish in it and it had dirt. And it doesn't mean like all the people were completely poor, but the people of Galilee did, uh, they talked funny. They had an accent from Galilee that everyone would be like, oh man, you're from Galilee. Okay. People from Jerusalem and Judea would actually make fun of the accents that the Galileans had. This drawl actually gave Peter away. You can look at Mark 14, verse 70. Uh, He tried to deny Christ and he says, no, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just like, dude, your voice gives you away. You're from Galilee. I know that, that sound. And he, you know, he runs off. Why Galilee? What's he doing there? Well, couple reasons. First off, I believe that the same Holy Spirit who was with him in baptism, who drove him into the wilderness, has now driven him to where he needs to be. Um, And, you know, we could stop there. We don't need to question the plan of God any further. Jesus is responding to the plan of God. Um, But why did God plan it this way, I guess? This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus coming to Galilee is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, I'll read it for you. It says, In Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Again, you get kind of the feeling of Galilee. He calls it the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> like when we read, you know, Psalm 23, oh, even though I walk through Raymond, thou, you know, your spirit will be with. That, 
they're, it's, they're calling it you know, an actual place. But Galilee, Galilee would be the place that would see a great light. And that is where most of uh, Jesus' disciples would be from. Judas would actually be from around Jerusalem, Judea. But most of the good guys are from, uh, are from Galilee up there. So that's where he goes and he goes and he's preaching. After John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Notice this. Jesus was preaching. He was a preacher of the gospel. Jesus was a preacher of the gospel. He wasn't just a uh, philanthropist or a humanitarian, you know, kind of guy who kissed babies and, you know, do soup kitchens. Not just. He was a preacher, primarily. The first thing he does, in fact, he is a preacher of the gospel. Gospel, talked about that last week. It's good news. Um, and verse 15 will tell us what the good news was that he was preaching. Um, to preach, kind of needed to find terms here. Um, to preach is to proclaim vocally a message. And again, this might seem like it's obvious, but it's not anymore, believe it or not. It may be obvious to you and you can pat yourself on the back, but ever since uh, St. Francis, St. Francis of Assisi, said something really catchy uh, in the 12th century. Ever since he said that, people don't know what preaching is anymore. And I'm sure you've heard this, actually. You've heard this uh, quote. It's been attributed to other people that have said it since. But he said, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. And we all go, oh, yeah, that's so good. That's actually not possible. <laughs> uh, maybe you should have used different words or something, but... As a side note, St. Francis preached to trees and butterflies and stuff, so you don't want to take what he said too seriously. Um, we know what he was trying to say. We've seen the bumper stickers and the posters, you know, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. You know, you're, let your actions speak of Christ, certainly. Don't be like those. We preached on this when we were in Titus, right? It says there are some who profess to know God, but in works, deny him. That's not okay. It's never okay. Okay, we get that. Our lives should match up with the gospel. But the common misapplication of that saying uh, is basically the idea that I can preach the gospel, um, I can obey the command of God to preach the gospel in season and out of season without ever saying anything. And um, you can't, actually. To preach the gospel without words is impossible, um, just because of the definition of preaching. Uh, if we are going to do the work of God the way Jesus did the work of God, we're actually going to have to say something. And that probably scares the living daylights out of half of you. Okay? But if you think of the gospel, and as Paul defined the gospel for us in 1 Corinthians 15, it is the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. How do you preach that without saying it? Like a sandwich doesn't do it. You know, you have to do charades and stuff. And be like, okay, I'm hiding the tomato in the sandwich and it's buried and then it's like, how do you preach the gospel without words? You can't do it. Okay. You need to actually declare it. Um, and that's not to, uh, put down good works by any means or anything. I mean, that's what we're really talking about in Mark more than anything else. But Jesus primarily was a preacher. What did he preach? Verse 15 says he preached and saying the time is fulfilled. That's the first part of his good news. The time is fulfilled. The word fulfilled or filled, we know what that means. You know, you've got a glass, it's empty. Pour your orange juice in it, now it's filled. Okay, fulfilled uh, to the Hebrew mind meant a whole lot more than a glass of orange juice. It would have been more like that glass was created just for that purpose and it could only be filled once. 
and it's been empty for a long time, now it's time for orange juice. Okay, now you can fill it up. And uh, what Jesus is saying, he says the time is fulfilled because since Adam, since Genesis 3, okay, this figurative cup has been being built by prophecies and types and foreshadowings, but the prophecies, prophesying was over now, and it's time for that empty cup to finally be full, be fulfilled, to be filled. It was time for the prophecies to be fulfilled. To use another analogy, you know, the prophecies of the Old Testament built a frame, kind of. You read the Old Testament, and you've got a frame, and Jesus is saying, the picture is here. I'm in the frame. I'm filling, I'm fulfilling that frame that you've had for a long time. Paul said that the Old Covenant was a shadow of things to come, and Christ is the substance. Colossians 2, verse 17. Jesus is the substance of a long shadow that is cast throughout the Old Testament. And you read the Old Testament, and you can get the outline. You know, you can get the silhouette and the shadow. But then now Jesus is saying, look up. There's the substance that's been casting that shadow this whole time. It's me. The time is fulfilled. Um, I'm going to take you on a short trip through the Old Testament here. You know, I, did, I taught through the whole, Testament in, whole Old Testament in three weeks because Eric made me. So uh, I can do it. I can do it quicker right now. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. In Genesis 3, I'm just going to mention a few prophecies that Jesus fulfilled by the time he showed up here. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve messed everything up for all of us, God said there would be a descendant of Eve who would have his heel bruised by Satan, but who would himself bruise the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15. That's the first mention of the Messiah in Scripture of the promise. Later in Genesis 12, God promised Abram, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he says, in your seed or in your descendant, one. Okay, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that promise was passed down to his son Isaac and then to Jacob and then to Judah. In Genesis 49, Jacob prophesies of Judah saying, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. That's a messianic phrase there that you get once. And to him, to Shiloh, the Messiah, shall be the obedience of the people. Genesis 49, verse 10. That prophecy said the promised one who God promised Eve would come, Eve would come from Judah. And Judah will be the tribe of kings until that one shows up. From David until 7 AD, there was always a ruler from Israel, from the tribe of Judah. They kept the the line and they had, Israel had some kind of self-governing of themselves. In 7 AD, Rome took away the right of capital punishment from Israel. And so that scepter, that authority, that government authority that Judah had was lost in 7 AD. When that happened, Jewish scholars uh, all over Israel were heartbroken and there was mourning in the streets and they were saying, they would cry out, the scepter has departed from Judah and Shiloh has not come. Um, because they recognize it's, it's over. There was the close of our window for the Messiah. Uh, but Jesus was there. He was just a kid. He had been born. He had been born already. Um, there are many more. In Deuteronomy 18, God told Moses that they would raise up a, he would raise up a prophet of their own. Uh, and then God tells David that the Messiah would be his son, 2 Samuel 7, 16. Micah 5, 2, uh, the prophet says that the ruler would come from Bethlehem. And these are all talking about a time that would be fulfilled. They're all saying there's one coming, there's one coming, this is what he's going to be like, this is what he's going to do, this is where he's going to come. And it's talking about this stuff, and Jesus says the time has been fulfilled. Um, there were even specific prophecies about the timing of Jesus' coming that were 
fulfilled to A.T. in Daniel chapter 9. Nine, Daniel 9.25, Daniel said that the Messiah would come, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm doing the math for you, he would come 483 years after the order to rebuild the temple was given. That order was given in Nehemiah chapter 2 in 445 B.C. If you account for count calendar changes from B.C. to A.D., leap years, etc., you see that Christ fulfilled that prophecy. That's when Jesus came up, and Daniel knew it because God told him. That time was fulfilled. There was one time, one shot, and Jesus made it. He fulfilled that time. It was time for God to show up, and he did. Uh, in Galatians, Paul talks about this even. In Galatians 4, verse 4, it says that Jesus came when the fullness of time had come. The fullness of time means that the time was full. It was perfect, not only prophetically, but practically even. There were things in Jesus' time that were relatively modern that made the world ripe for the gospel. Synagogues were only a few hundred years old at that point, and they provided Jesus and later Paul with an opportunity to speak. Um, the whole world spoke Greek at this point, pretty much, which made it easy for the early church to spread the gospel quickly. The, uh, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, made it easy for travelers like Paul to get around places and preach the gospel. Um, and you can see even God using these things and even the rulers at Christ's birth, Caesar, Caesar Augustus, uh, calling a census and so bringing Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, he's setting things up for the fulfillment of prophecy because this is the fullness of time. time the time is fulfilled. Jesus said it and boy, did he mean it. So he says, it's now, here it is, right now. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? Um, interesting question, actually. There's uh, some people that are confused about it or just disagreeing about it. Matthew talks more about the kingdom of heaven. And Mark talks about the kingdom of God. So people have tried to come up with different definitions for both sometimes. Um, I, I think that Matthew is just being sensitive to his Jewish audience who wouldn't speak or write the word God ever. Um, so kingdom of heaven. But... Um, there are, you've got different passages that lead to some different conclusions, maybe. For example, you have Luke 17, 21. Um, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is within you or in your midst. Um, and when Pilate asks Jesus if he's king, uh, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And then on the cross, you have, have the thief saying, when you come into your kingdom, remember me, indicating that there is a future kingdom coming. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, so from that passage, you know, it sounds like you've got a kingdom coming or the kingdom of God is in heaven. Before Jesus' ascension, uh, the disciples ask, when will the kingdom be restored to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know. I'm not telling. And, but he, he indicates that that is coming as well. In Revelation and other passages in the Old Testament and New Testament, you have indications that Christ will come. You have prophecies, not indications, specific prophecies that Jesus will come and reign from a literal throne in Jerusalem in a physical body over the entire world. Okay, what's that kingdom? You know, is that the kingdom of God? Is this the kingdom of God? Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. When I get these big theological questions, I'd like to go straight to the authority, which is my son's children's Bible, which I meant to bring and didn't, but it's in the bookstore. The Jesus Storybook Bible is great. Lots of pictures. Every page you get pictures, color pictures. So it's good. Um, what it says... What it says is the kingdom of God is wherever God is king. Oh, that's actually a really great definition. 
When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand in Mark 1.15, he's saying the time is at hand when God will be king. Uh, Jesus was coming to rule hearts and to bring hearts under the submission of King God. Okay? Uh, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you, he's saying when you follow me, God is king of your life. God is king of your hearts, your soul. Okay? When, he, when Pilate says my kingdom is, uh, or when he says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, he's acknowledging that, yeah, you know what? Satan does wreak havoc in this world and the world he was living in politically was run by Rome and would be for quite some time afterwards. Jesus wasn't setting up a political kingdom then. Uh, he, was taking he was taking authority over lives, not lands. Uh, that does not eliminate the reality of a coming geopolitical kingdom either. Uh, after the tribulation, prophecy stuff, fun to talk about afterwards. Uh, but when Jesus rules as a king on earth, this earth will fall under the heading kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where God is king. Is this, this right here, is this the kingdom of God? I hope so. I sure hope so. Is the kingdom of God within you? Uh, I hope so. You know, take a, take a, you know, a look. Who's the king of your life? Does the Holy Spirit drive you does he have control over your decisions the way he did with uh, Jesus? Who rules your life? Who's king? Is it the kingdom of God or the kingdom of you? Uh, when Jesus came into the world preaching, he said, now is the time for God to be king. And in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 6.2, it says, today is the day of salvation, meaning that that message hasn't stopped being preached. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's still at hand, okay? Because today is the day of salvation. Um, this is a powerful word for saint and sinner alike, okay? Saved and unsaved. And this is why. If you know someone who is far from God, and you do, uh, God is not far from them, okay? The option for repentance follows them closely. The love of God pursues them. Repentance is always only turning around, you never have to undo your entire past. God is right behind each person running from him. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Everyone, at any point in time, anyone in sin or running from God, at any point in time, the kingdom of God is within reach of, of repentance. It's a prayer. It's, it's turning and that's it. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then for, uh, for the, the person who isn't saved, you know, you know those who are, are far from God and God is near to them and he is saving people and he's continuing to bring people into his church. There are people that you know who aren't saved yet. All right. And if you're one of them that isn't saved yet, you know, if you have dethroned God and how, made attempts, however poor, at trying to run your life on your own terms, the gospel is still good news. And this gospel that Jesus preached, the kingdom of God is at hand. Today is the day of salvation. You've never been closer than at this very moment to having God become the king of your life. Never than at this moment. Here's something that Jesus changed from the old covenant to the new that maybe we don't think about very often. Under the old covenant, if you realize that you were a sinner and you needed Jesus, figuratively speaking, uh, and you need to get right with God, there was a process you had to go through. Okay, there were, you've got your animal sacrifices, you've got your priest who's from a special family, then you've got the tabernacle or the temple that you've got to go through in the steps, and there's a process of repentance and getting right with God. The kingdom of God was not at hand. You couldn't just reach out and get that. 
from there. There was a, there was a process. You know, Jesus changed this. You want to get right with God? Do you want to be ruled by God? Okay, let's do it right now. Just right now. Go. The kingdom of God is at hand. It didn't always used to be. Today is the day of salvation. It didn't always used to be. So what do you do about that? If today, if the kingdom of God is at hand, if it's within reach, what do you do about it? Last words, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is telling people to repent and believe. And this is essentially the same as what John had been telling people before. John was preaching a baptism of repentance. You can look at verse 4. Um, he was saying, God is coming, prepare your hearts. Now Jesus is the God who was coming, and he's come. And now he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Be sure you're a part of it. You know, be sure you're a part of it. You're going to have to turn around. To repent is to turn, quite literally. That's what, uh, that's what it means. Jesus, like John, is telling people who are far from God to turn around and realize that God's right behind them. Saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn around, he's right there. Repentance is the first step to conversion. Man is naturally sinful. He is born sinful. He continues in sin. Romans 3 verse 11 says that there is none who seeks after God. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And that means all humankind is headed for, in the wrong direction. Okay? All humankind. And I know that's closed-minded and exclusive. You're welcome. Uh, but the, the call to repentance is a call to stop doing what comes naturally and instead turn to God. And this is something that we won't get our fill of uh, during this lifetime. Repentance is something that continues. And we wish it wasn't, but it is. Uh, it is the first step to becoming the Christian. It's, it doesn't lose its place once you become a Christian. It's something you should get used to. James 5 verse 16 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another, and you will be healed. And this is still good news. And Jesus preached it then. The Holy Spirit preaches it now. The kingdom is at hand. It's one reach away at all times. Sins can be forgiven the instant they're committed. It's repentance, confession, turning to Jesus who is king. Uh, the encouragement today is be like Jesus and listen to him and follow him. Jesus was driven by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is driving, don't resist. Uh, Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. If you're not part of that, reach out. It's one step away. Uh, if there are sins to be repented of, repent and believe in the gospel. What's the gospel? What's the gospel that we need to believe in? Believe that the kingdom of God is at hand and that God is king and you need to align yourself to that king. That's what needs to happen. That's what needs to happen today. I'm going to pray. I'm going to be up here for a while. Um, feel free to come up afterwards or talk about anything or, or anyone next to you. There's a lot of people who can pray in this church. Let's Let's close it up with prayer. Jesus, thank you for... Oh, a kingdom that is better than this world. <laughs> I thank you that a king, for a kingdom that is in our midst that we don't need to uh, anxiously try to achieve or get to or anything, but a kingdom that you've brought to us. I thank you for Christ as a model for ministry. Uh, and I, I pray that we would be able to follow you and be driven like you are driven by the Holy Spirit. I thank you for your kingdom. Again, I pray that we would be a part of it. I pray for hearts in each one of us that are humble and willing to turn, willing to repent of sins. Uh, I pray that your people uh, would turn from their wicked ways 
and that you would hear from heaven. I thank you, God, that you hear and answer prayer and that today is the day of salvation. I thank you for this great salvation. I thank you that you are mighty to save and that you alone save. Save now, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thus endeth the reading of the word.